I've uh, been invited to open uh, this morning uh, first with an announcement that tonight we will gather uh, in this very room uh, at, for, at five o'clock for a potluck dinner as well as movie night. Uh, for the, we'll watch together the 2003 biopic uh, on Martin Luther, who we'll be talking about in this series. So. Uh, you are invited to come this evening, and we hope to see you all there. Before I turn things over to Zev, can we open in a word of prayer? Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for the history of the church, the ways that uh, you have you have used your your spirit has spoken to all the saints throughout the ages, the ways that you have burdened us and blessed us and given us hope for a new day. Bless us again, God. May your spirit be here today, inspiring us through those saints of ages past. May their journeys, may their lives inform our lives, not just uh, as facts in a book or on a screen, but may these, uh, may these people speak to our hearts and into our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, that's better, especially to uh, record this. Now, since today we are doing Martin Luther for the entire session, guess what we're going to do? And since people sing better, most people sing better when they are standing than when they are sitting, could I ask those of you who can to please rise and join in two verses of Guess Which
Mike, there we go. Last week's big ideas, there were three of them. From Marsilius of Padua, we got the supremacy of civil authority over the church. From John Wycliffe, the vernacular Bible, and by extension, the concept of sola scriptura. And from Jan Hus, that communion is for the people of God. Now, oh boy, that's dark. That suits Luther. We're going to do the entire session today on Martin Luther. Now, we're not going to cover the whole of Luther's life. That's a little bit more than the session could possibly handle. Again, we are trying to get at the big idea. What is the big idea that Luther had? And so we are not going to discuss certain things, not Luther's anti-Semitism, nor his invective against the peasants' revolt or other things like that. Luther was born on the 10th of November, 1483, in Eisleben, in Saxony, which was then part of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the reason I put all of that information up was for a very simple reason. We tend to think of Martin Luther as German. Well, he was. He spoke German. He thought in German. But there was no such country as Germany at the time of Luther's birth or his death. Instead, there was the Holy Roman Empire, which was in many ways a loose confederation of independent states. And the state in which Luther was born was Saxony. And he died on the 18th of February, 1546, in the same town of Eisleben. That's, now, that's not unusual. People generally uh, in those days would bor be born, grow up, live, and die within 20 miles of their birthplace. And, but what's interesting is that Martin Luther did live elsewhere during his life, but he was buried in Eisleben. His father, by the way, was a leaseholder in copper mines and smelters. His mother was an educated person. She was later maligned by Catholics falsely. We now need to turn to his early life and career, and we're going to be focusing really on the earlier part of Luther's life. Now, the thing to keep in mind as we go through this, uh, Martin Luther's work and his life is that Luther was not a systematic thinker. Luther was, at, um, I had the advantage when I went to seminary, our church historian, the Reverend Donald, Dr. Donald Armentrout, is a devout Lutheran. And he was absolutely marvelous as a teacher, of course, of Luther. And he characterized Luther as an intuitive religious genius an intuitive religious genius. And so in some ways, this particular format we're using in this series of what's the big idea suits Luther extremely well because he tended to focus very intently on a particular idea and not try to come up with a systematic approach. In 1501, he entered the University of Erfurt. 
So he was university trained. Uh, he didn't have a lot of affection for his alma mater. He later referred to the University of Erfurt as a whorehouse and an alehouse. He received his master's degree, and at his father's behest in 1505, he entered law school. He immediately dropped out of law school. He found law profoundly dissatisfying. Sorry, judge. He's found that law could only increase his uncertainty. It only increased his uncertainty. Uh, his father was not happy about that. Uh, he also had studied philosophy, but he found that also dissatisfying. And he found that reason, you know, as he put it, could give you knowledge about the world, but not any knowledge about God. That could only come through revelation. And Luther, you know, one thing you can say about him, he didn't pull any punches. He would later refer to reason as a whore. So don't look to uh, Martin Luther as a rationalist. The key event, really, of his life happened on July 2nd, 1505, when he was riding through the forest in a thunderstorm on his way back to Erfurt, and there was a thunderstorm, and a bolt of lightning struck very near him. He fell from his horse and exclaimed, help me, Saint Anna, I will become a monk. That's what people did in those days when they got the daylight scared out of them. Uh, and much against his father's wishes on July 17, 1505, he entered St. Augustine's Monastery in Erfurt. So he was still sticking close to his base of operations. But as he said to some friends, you will see me no more after he went into the monastery. Uh, Luther's career as a monastic, first of all, this was the order that had actually been founded by St. Augustine of Hippo. And so it was a fairly um, strict order. And uh, Luther devoted himself to the kind of piety that was fairly typical of Roman Catholicism and monastics at that time except that Luther never did anything by half measures. So he devoted himself to prayers, to fasting, to pilgrimages, and above all, to penance. Keep in mind, in 1415, the Council of Constance that had burned Jan Hus at the stake and ordered John Wycliffe to be disinterred and his remains burned, also promulgated the doctrine of the seven sacraments in which penance was one of the seven sacraments of the church. Now, a typical monk in those days would come to their confessor daily, as they were supposed to do, and spend maybe 10, 15, if they were in a bad mood, have 20 minutes, receive a penance from the confessor, and then go happily off to their work. Martin Luther would come in and spend two or three hours in the confessional going over every single thing that he thought he had done wrong, 
until finally his spiritual director confessor, Johann von Staupitz, said, stop coming in with all these peccadilloes. But as incredibly detailed and complete as he thought he was making his confession, it usually only took him the few minutes that travel between the confessional and his cell to come up with more sins that he hadn't thought of to confess to the confessor. So he suffered from what we in Anglicanism used to call a scrupulous conscience. His conscience was uh, very much an oppressive thing to him. Um, As he put it, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made of him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. That was his attitude. Now, von Staupitz tried very hard to direct him instead to the merits of Christ and that there were other ways. At one point, they thought he could benefit from a pilgrimage to Rome. After all, pilgrimages were another way to assuage guilt and you know, buy yourself some time out of purgatory. So he went on the pilgrimage to Rome as part of, he was doing a mission for his order, and he went through all of the pilgrim routines that were done there, including, uh, I don't know whether it was the Spanish steps, but the, you know, the steps that you're supposed to climb up. He climbed up on his knees, saying his rosary, and when he got to the top, he stood up and said, I don't think this works or words to that effect, something like, I wonder if it is really as so. Plus, he was highly disillusioned by the materialism and corruption that he saw in the Roman church. On April 3rd, 1507, he was ordained as a priest. And once again, this was something, by this time his father had pretty much, and his family had kind of reconciled them to the fact that Luther would never be a lawyer, but was going to be a monk, and now he was a priest. And the time came for him to say his first mass. And his family and friends had gathered. They were excited about this moment. It's supposed to be a big moment in a priest's life. You say your first mass. And when he came to the words of institution that were in the Roman Catholic tradition, the point of consecration of the bread and wine, he became suddenly so aware of his unworthiness to do this great act that he literally stopped cold and was unable to proceed. And he was silent for a number of moments and then finally managed to sort of barely audibly mumble his way through the the rest of it. So he had a tremendous sense of his own unworthiness. Tremendous sense of his own unworthiness. Now, in 1508, Johann von Staupitz, his spiritual advisor from Erfurt, invited Luther to come to the newly founded University of Wittenberg. Wittenberg, it was not that far away. And to teach theology. And Luther complained, with everything else I have to do, this much work will kill me. Well, von Staupitz simply said, 
Well, that's all right. God has use for, for very clever people in heaven as well. And that same year, he received a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. Note, this was the first theological degree that Luther earned, was a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, and that was his initial teaching post. In 1509, he got a second bachelor's degree in the theological sentences of Peter Lombard. Now, I know you all have a copy of the theological sentences of Peter Lombard on your bedside table at night, and uh, if you don't, let me tell you, you will never buy another sleep aid again if you do that. (laughs) But this was the standard manual of Catholic doctrine in the Middle Ages. Peter Lombard was a medieval scholastic who in a sense put together the whole of Catholic teaching in a series of sentences. In 1512, he was awarded his Doctor of Theology degree, and at that point he also succeeded von Staupitz as Chair of the Theology Department. And uh, he held that position for the rest of his life. He was the Chair of the Theology Department at this relatively young University of Wittenberg. Now, the key event that we want to take a look at today took place on October 31st, 1517. He posted his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Now, it's interesting. This was the church attached to the castle of the local monarch. Okay, this was the public way of posting theses for debate. And at this point, what I'd like to do is pause for a moment. And how many of you took your 95 theses home and nailed them or taped them to your refrigerator doors? How many of you read them? Okay. In 10 words or less, what's the uh, key idea that you saw from the 95 Theses? Abolish indulgences. Well, you got that down to two words. Other imperfect, imperfectible man made perfect by repentance and grace of God, not papal indulgence. Imperfect. (laughs) Human, I will correct that. Imperfect human. What was that again, please? Well, yeah, humanity, okay. Made perfect by repentance and grace of God. Not And by the grace of God, did you say?
Any other summaries? Yeah. You can't buy forgiveness. Any other? Pope and priests have no authority. Anything else? Okay, that'll do for a starter. Now, what we've got here, one, two, three, four, five different summaries of the 95 Theses. So if you were going to use the 95 Theses alone as the uh, big idea or to get the big idea of Luther, be pretty hard. Is there anything that would possibly condense these different versions into one simple declarative sentence, shall we say? Well, stay tuned. What? God's holiness. Okay. You have actually hit on a very key theme in Luther's life. And this is critical for understanding Luther's position and his insight. Luther, perhaps almost more than anyone else in church history, had a deep, profound, and intense appreciation for the holiness of God, and by the way, for his own unholiness. So how does an unholy human being become reconciled to an infinitely holy God? That was really the central portion of Luther's spiritual struggle. That was the thing about his spiritual struggle. Now, One of the things we need to do, if we're going to understand, how many people know what an indulgence is? Anybody here can give me a definition of an indulgence? Someone other than the pastor. What? What? Pay to play. Okay. Well, to understand this, there are really several things we have to know about the history of the church as the background for the 95 Theses. The first is the penitential system of the church. And what I would have to say is that by the time of Luther, what could be said about the church is that the church had almost become the penitential system. In fact, another way, if you th think about the etymological relationship between penitence and penitentiary, is the church had become the open penitentiary of Europe. The open penitentiary of Europe. 
Now, to get some idea of how this had developed, you have to keep in mind how the Roman church got where it was. And of course, the three key date is the year 315. What happened in 315? What? Constantine, the Edict of Milan, that made Christianity a licit religion, a legal religion. It had been against the law to be a Christian up until that point. And in fact, Constantine embraced the church as a bulwark of his empire. And in 325, when we had the Council of, Constant, uh, Council of Nicaea that Michael talked about towards the beginning of our uh, sessions together, it was Constantine, not any of the bishops, it was Constantine who presided over the First Ecumenical Council. Now what's ironic about that is that Constantine hadn't even been baptized yet. But this established the precedent of what is known as Caesaropapism. Okay. Ah, you don't need to know the word. Um, in a sense, in the Eastern Church, it is Caesar who is the Pope. Okay. Now, when Constantine made the, the, the church an official religion of the Roman Empire, Everybody wanted to be baptized. And so we get this indiscriminate infant baptism beginning to take place. And people realized, wait a minute, this is a rite that was originally intended for the baptism of believers upon profession of faith. Why are we indiscriminately baptized infants? Well, Martin Luther's good patron of his order St. Augustine came up with a brilliant idea, the Western doctrine of original sin. Let's say that every human being born naturally is born as part of a damned mass. In Latin, massa damnata, is born damned. And that the only way to rescue this infant child from damnation is baptism. In other words, baptism rescued you from hell. Well, a lot of people really thought this was a great idea because what seems to be the implication of this? If I want to avoid damnation, what do I have to do? Get baptized, right? And then I'm home free, right? Well, the church realized, wait a minute, We've got people indulging in all kinds of post-baptismal sins. And this is clearly not a good thing. So what we need to do is scare people back into obedience by threatening them with hell for post-baptismal sin. And so they painted these increasingly lurid pictures of the torments of the damned and came up with more and more ways you could sin away grace, the grace of baptism, and sin away your salvation. Well, people then developed a lot of fear. And uh, so in a, a very real sense, the church realized, okay, we've got people getting almost paranoid 
And what they were doing then is instead of misbehaving after baptism, they were delaying baptism till their deathbeds to make sure that they didn't have a chance to sin after baptism. So they thought they'd better come up with another idea, and that idea was purgatory. And this way they said, no, if you sin after your baptism, but repent, you can work off the penalty of your sin, not in hell, but in another place called purgatory. And people thought, okay, this is pretty good. Sin now, pay later. You know, kind of like a Christmas club for penalties. And so once again, they were faced with lax consciences and lax behavior. So they had to start cranking up the fires of purgatory until the medieval portraits of purgatory made it almost as bad as hell. So then once again, you had people who were waiting to get baptized, waiting, you know. And so they realized they needed to come up with a quick and easy way to ease people's consciousness. And that's when they came up with the concept of indulgences. Indulgences. Now, what was an indulgence? There were a lot of ways to work off your penalty for sin in the Middle Ages. One of the best ways was to go on pilgrimage. And how many people here have read the Canterbury Tales? Okay, if you were an English major, you probably had to. And, you know, of course, the pilgrimage to St. Thomas of Becket's Shrine in Canterbury was very popular in England. Even more popular, perhaps, was the pilgrimage to the Shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham in North England. But in medieval Europe, the second biggest pilgrimage site was Rome. And you could earn a lot of merit to set off against the penalties that you would have to pay in purgatory by going on a pilgrimage to Rome. The biggie, the biggie was the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land. But by the late Middle Ages, after the Crusaders had been kicked out, that was incredibly dangerous and difficult. The big problem with a lot of pilgrimages also is that they were costly, and so people couldn't afford it. So the church came up with this marvelous idea. You purchase an indulgence, give to the church, and you got the same merit as if you had made the pilgrimage. That was the origin of the indulgence system. It was essentially making a contribution, an offering to the church, and in return, the church would apply to you from the merit, treasury of merit of Christ and the saints, the same merit you would have earned on pilgrimage. Well, the other thing that the church absolutely discovered is, wait a minute, this is a pretty good money-making thing. And especially we can prey on people's fear of what their dead relatives are going through in purgatory by saying, I'll tell you what, you want to help your dead relative? Buy an indulgence. Buy an indulgence for them. And it became one of the best money-making things that the church had ever discovered. So this is important to keep in mind. The church had basically become a vast penitential system. And again, one of the things that the Council of Constance did, it defined penance as one of the seven sacraments. 
and it redefined, it sort of replaced the concepts of repent, which is what Jesus actually said, with do penance as the scriptural warrant for the penitential system. Now, there was, in the 15th century, a group of people, including a rather obscure goldsmith, and they came up with a terrific idea to help make, to make money for themselves by getting indulgences made up for the church. Now, the standard method of printing in those days was woodblock printing. And so they put together their resources and did this printing edition of these indulgences for an indulgence sale that was going on. Unfortunately, there was one huge problem. They had the wrong year in it. And so they wondered, what are we going to do? We've spent the money, and then one of their members, this goldsmith, said, I have a little invention I've just come up with. Who was the inventor? What? It was Gutenberg. Gutenberg. And that was the technological breakthrough. But one thing you have to keep in mind about, the, about Gutenberg's method of printing on movable type. The first application of the printing press, printing on movable type, was to print indulgences because that's where the money was. Okay, so that was pretty good. By the way, when Gutenberg printed his Bible, what language was it in? What? It was Latin. It was the Latin Vulgate. Okay. But that was the big technological breakthrough because the other thing that having printing on movable type would enable you to do is put out pamphlets. Pamphlets. So one of the things that happened with the 95 Theses, remember, Luther had posted the 95 Theses as subjects for debate. It was an announcement that I'm going to debate these subjects, these theses, in public. Anyone wants to come and take me on, fine. Okay, they were a debate topics. Well, somebody thought that Luther's 95 theses were pretty neat. They copied them down. They took them to the local printer, and the next thing you know, copies of the 95 theses are all over Europe thanks to the printing presses. Luther would, find, uh, would prove to be one of the most capable, if nasty, pamphleteers in the history of the genre. There was another important breakthrough that happened before the 95 Theses. In 1516, Desiderius Erasmus produced the first critical edition of the New Testament not in Latin, but in Greek. The problem, of course, with the Vulgate is that it was a translation from the original Greek, which almost nobody read or understood, into the vulgar language of Latin, which was what most everybody spoke, though by the time of Luther, very few people understood Latin. But it was essentially not, it was a translation of the Greek New Testament, the New Testament portions, into Latin. Um, Erasmus 
was the one who first did a very critical edition, a very carefully researched edition of the Greek New Testament. Now, all of this sets the stage for a particularly outrageous sale of indulgences run by a man named Tetzel. Uh, the basic problem was this. The Pope wanted to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, and he needed money. And one of the people who wanted to contribute to this was the Archbishop of Mainz, who was one of the prince bishops in the German lands. That is, he was not only the ecclesiastical authority, he was the temporal ruler. He basically was the monarch of the Archbishopric of Mainz. And he wanted to contribute. There was only one problem. He had debts that he needed to pay off first. So he commissioned Tetzel to sell indulgences, to raise money to pay off the archbishop's debts so he could contribute to the building of St. Peter's, the rebuilding of St. Peter's. So keep this in mind. What was the purpose of this sale of indulgences? It was to make money for the archbishop. And Tetzel had a particularly effective sales technique, a jingle that he used to recite. Anybody know what that was? As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That was his sales pitch. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now, Tetzel was not a malicious person. He was not a brilliant person. But, you know, he was not, you know, all that, you know, but he was not all that brilliant. And he basically ended up, you know, ending his public career over the Fuhrer launched by Martin Luther's counterattack against indulgences and retired from public life. Um, so that's the background. Now, in 10 words or less, what was Luther's big idea? Anybody? Only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. What? Only by the grace of What? Are you saved? Salvation is solely by the grace of God. What? On what basis was he going to reform the church? Ah, so again it comes back to salvation is by grace alone, not by anything that the church sells you. Okay? Since basically, I told you last week, you should be able to come up with the big idea behind the 95 theses in 10 words or less and actually eight words. And those eight words are justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how did Luther discover this concept? Anybody know? Go back to his time at Wittenberg when he was appointed to teach theology. What was his primary subject? The Bible. The Bible. 
okay? And he taught psalms, and he taught various other things. It's when he got to Paul's letter to the Romans. And this is the breakthrough passage. This is the breakthrough passage. It's Romans 1, verses 16 through 17. And this was a bombshell in Luther's mind. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now he's quoting Habakkuk, I think, yeah. And what's interesting, anybody, of course, I'm probably the only one here who knows the Hebrew of Habakkuk. How many people have read Habakkuk recently? You can actually get through it in less than an hour. Okay. But the important passage that he's citing from Habakkuk in Hebrew is again one of those things it helps to know that Hebrew in the original text has no punctuation. Has no punctuation. And it's tzaddik be'emunato yichyeh. Now, that can be punctuated two ways. You can say tzaddik be'emunato the one who is righteous by his faith, yichyeh, that one will live. Or, tzaddik, a righteous person, be'emunato yichyeh, will live by his faith. Now, the important point is, Luther was a biblical scholar. And the result is, this passage, if you ask me, well, what's the correct way to read it? It is, is it the one who by his faith is righteous shall live, or the one who is righteous shall live by his faith. And in typical rabbinic fashion, I will reply, yes. <laughs> and that's the point. In other words, what Luther discovered is that the entire Christian life, from first to last, is entirely a matter of faith entirely a matter of faith. Now, what's the importance of this? What I'd like to do is skip down here to Romans 5, and Romans 5.1 has a sentence that must have absolutely been balm to Luther's troubled conscience. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now think about Luther's constant struggle with his own conscience during his life. How much of an incredible breakthrough that must have been to say, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
This was the one thing he'd sought and never found. And now he'd found it. Justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Years ago, I read a very interesting book called The Protestant Faith by a theologian named Forel, George Forel, and he broke it down into five principles, that these are the five basic principles of Protestantism. Okay. And the first thing to keep in mind, the first principle of Luther's understanding is sola gratia, sola gratia. Okay, what does that mean? Only by grace. In other words, how are you saved? You are saved only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, I repeat, nothing that you do in any way, shape, or form contributes to your salvation. And especially if you are trusting in your own performance, whether it be of penances, whether it be of pilgrimages, whether it be prayer, if you're trusting in your own performance, you're trusting the wrong thing. You're trusting something that cannot contribute one whit to your own salvation. Salvation comes, and what does it mean to say that salvation comes solely by grace? How do, you know, what? It can't be earned, so it must be given. It comes as a gift, pure gift, start to finish. Absolutely, salvation comes as a pure gift. The second principle is sola fide. What if you cannot contribute to your own salvation by what you do, if you can't earn it, how do you receive a gift? You say, yeah, thank you. In other words, how do you appropriate grace? Sola fide means what? Only by faith, by faith alone. Faith is the only thing by which we can receive grace. Good works are necessary, as the Anglican articles put it, in that by them a lively faith may be discerned, but it is the faith that appropriates the grace, not your works. Because if your works appropriate faith, grace, then what are you doing? You're earning it. I hate to tell you this. How many people remember the old commercials on, you know, uh, with Leo McKern about Smith Barney? At Smith Barney, we earn money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. We earn it. Okay. Well, in the Roman Catholic Church, they made salvation the old-fashioned way. They earned it or tried to. And Luther said, uh-uh, only by faith in Jesus Christ can you appropriate the grace of God in Jesus Christ? That was the whole point. Now, this is sometimes presented as the three soli. So what is the third sola? 
sola what? What do you mean the word? Scripture. Sola scriptura. Now we've already seen sola scriptura. So I deliberately left this blank up here because Luther had his own unique take that is under, important to understand. It's Luther's doctrine of the Word. Luther's doctrine of the Word. So your first instinct was only the Word, in Luther's case, was really true. Okay. Luther's doctrine of the word was probably one of the most important things that I learned from him. And this is extremely important. Luther's doctrine of the word stated, when we talk about the word of God, to what primarily are we referring? What? Excuse me? Not the Bible. Jesus Christ is the word of God made flesh. Again, he was a scriptural scholar. So he knew that prologue to the Gospel of John, forward, backwards, inside out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word made flesh, was made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Okay? Now, that is extremely important that when we use the term Word of God for Luther, we are not referring to a text. We are referring to a person. In what sense, if at all, is Scripture the Word of God? Anybody? What? Of what? Of Jesus. I began to think John was about ready to die back there, thinking that everything that he has been teaching for the last 20 years was obviously not getting through. Scripture is the Word of God only insofar and to the extent that it bears witness to Christ, the Word made flesh. Now, there is a third understanding of the Word of God that is also important for Luther, something that has to do with the fact that I'm able to stand here now, retired, and Michael had to leave. And that is, if you preach Christ on the basis of the scriptural witness to it, then your sermon becomes the Word of God in a tertiary sense. Reminds me of an oak I heard about one homiletics professor telling his student, you will always preach about two things. You will always preach about Jesus, and you will always preach about 20 minutes. <laughs> so the doctrine of the word is important. Now, what is important about this, and this will be important, I want you to keep in mind, because next week, we're going to see a very different approach to Scripture.
because what Martin Luther was able to do with his doctrine of the word is to create what you might call a canon within the canon. Okay? A canon within the canon. If a portion of scripture bore witness to Jesus Christ, then it was the word of God. If it didn't, He was notorious for saying that in heaven he expected to warm his feet over James, the author of the letter of James, burning in hell. He also rejected the book of Revelation. I love his phrase there, a revelation should reveal something. <laughs> okay. Now, one of the reasons why sola fide is so important, a fourth point, because I have to move on here, is the fallenness and fallibility of all human beings and all human institutions. In other words, how would Martin Luther take to the relatively modern notion of papal infallibility? I'm sorry, you don't win the cardboard luggage and the vacation for two to Louisville, but tell him what he has won, Don Pardo. And this reinforces the idea that no matter how much you work, your works cannot contribute an iota to your salvation. That every morning you have exactly the same battle to fight that you fought yesterday morning and the day before that. Luther, you've got to keep in mind, this was a guy who had tried the monastic path of self-perfection. He had tried it to the hilt. He had found it to be a failure, and so he was profoundly skeptical about the possibilities of moral and spiritual growth. For Luther, the Christian life was almost invariably a case of two paces forward and two steps back. Um, he didn't really put much, and that's why for Luther there are only two legitimate uses for the law. The civil use of the law, which is the sword in the hands of the magistrate to punish wickedness, and the theological use, which was to roast your conscience to a good nut brown and drive you to the cross for your salvation, to teach you by your failure to please God to drive you to another way. And we will see one of the things that comes out of the Reformed tradition is something that Luther would never have accepted, which is the third use of law as a pattern of Christian behavior. That's why a lot of Lutherans, when you start trying to teach, you know, law-like statements, they say, ah, you're mixing gospel and law. That's wrong. Fifth idea, the priesthood of all believers. Now, this is important for two things. Um, remember, I think I read last week a portion of the first canon of the 12th Luther Lateran Council in 1215, there is one universal church of the faithful outside of which there is absolutely no salvation, in which there is the same priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whose body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread being changed, transubstantiatio, by the divine power into the body, 
and the wine into the blood, so that to realize the mystery of unity we may receive of him what he has received of us. And this sacrament no one can effect except the priest who has been duly ordained in accordance with the keys of the church which Jesus Christ himself gave to the apostles and their successors. Now, what's important about this, how many, I don't know, you know, there are a number of uh, people, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, when they talk about going into the church, what do they usually mean? This is especially true of Irish Catholics. They mean becoming a priest. Becoming a priest is going into the church. For Luther, what was going into the church? It was your baptism. Your baptism was your ordination. Everything else was just division of labor. And what's important about this is that this meant that the vocation in life of the layperson was just as good as the vocation of the priest. And this idea of vocation in daily life is again one of the key ideas. And all of this springs from justification by grace through faith. Uh, we're out of time, so I wanted to pause here. If you had any questions, and if you need an, yeah. Okay, that there's some conflict between sola scriptura and the doctrine of the word. Uh, hold that thought. Because when we get to the Reformed tradition, we will find that, no, wait a minute, there's a different understanding of the authority of scripture. Because for Luther, not all portions of the Bible were equally authoritative. Not all portions of the Bible were equally authoritative. So hold that thought because for the Reformed tradition, all parts of Scripture are equally inspired. Yeah. So Luther was, uh, it's fair to say he was very burdened by his guilt prior to all of this. Yeah. Was there more levity in Luther's life after he came to that epiphany? You know, well, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, I, I think that Luther, Luther is, I don't know. You know. Like, he had his students over to dinner. One of his most important works is the table talk of Martin Luther, where basically they came over, and he wasn't, didn't really want his comments written down, but his students would pirate, take pirate notes, and they later published them after Luther's death as the table talk, but I have a feeling that his students were not coming over to eat at uh, Martin and Catherine's table just for beer and sausages. This was part of their education, okay? And I, Luther is not the kind of person you'd want to go out for a drink with. For that matter, I'm not sure that any of the reformers were somebody that you'd want to go out for a drink with. Okay, they tended to be pretty serious folks. Yeah.
Yes. There was certainly uh, more joy. There was certainly more joy in his life. He wasn't constantly looking back over his shoulder waiting for God to smite him. Okay. Now, unfortunately, both of these, Michael didn't have a chance to rework the, the lyrics, but anybody who wants to, if you, want, if you need to come closer, let's stand and sing. And in this case, we don't have piano accompaniment. So this is my chance to take revenge on the tyranny of the tenors. Since I'm a baritone, let's sing the final two verses of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Amen.